This morning I opened in the section from Judges chapter 6 regarding an unlikely hero in Gideon. And I suggested that many of us are in a similar situation in which we are unlikely and intend never to be heroes. Uh, We intend to lay low, uh, we intend to mind our own business, and we hope uh, that no one asks us to do anything difficult or brave. The problem with that, however, uh, is that is not how God has designed his church. Uh, It is not an organization, it is an organism. It is the body of Christ in which every member of the body uh, must contribute to the good of the whole. And if we had a lot of people laying low and uh, saying, I'll keep myself out of trouble and no one will know I'm here, uh, what we're talking about is muscles that would atrophy. We're talking about uh, synapses in our brains that uh, will not fire. We're talking about a bum knee or a, a strained ankle. Uh, we're saying the body of Christ will not function unless. All of us, as we are gifted by the Lord, contribute those gifts uh, to the building up of the body, uh, to the strengthening and the glorifying of uh, our body and its head, uh, Jesus Christ himself. I also suggested that the time of the judges is amazingly similar to uh, the time in which we live now. Uh, Everybody is doing what is right in his own eyes. Uh, We're living in a pluralistic society in which, in addition to Christianity, there are many other religions living among us, uh, each clamoring for attention. We also live in a society in which we are amazingly tolerant of false views, sometimes even incorporating them into our lifestyles as well, just as they intermarried and began to adopt the gods of those around them. Uh, We find ourselves, uh, much like the churches in uh, the book of Revelation to whom Jesus wrote, uh, becoming like the cities in which our uh, churches are located. We're finding ourselves increasingly influenced by them. And hence I suggest that uh, the difficulties that God sends our way uh, may not be merely uh, to uh, cause us uh, to be frustrated, but actually to cause us to wake up and realize uh, that we are uh, reaping what we have sown uh, and that he is seeking to gain our attention and call us back to uh, stringent obedience to him and a desire to see him pleased with us serving him uh, with all of our hearts and all of our being. In the case of uh, this particular situation, uh, with the Midianites setting uh, down in the land and stealing the crops and stealing the livestock, God desired to give them a liberator, a a person who would lead them in victory over the enemy, Uh, but the person he picks is not a person we would pick. Do you remember back in your grade school uh, playground days uh, when You lined up on a line, and the two captains of the two teams would go down the line and pick. Uh, Usually they'd pick their friends first, and then the athletes second, and then uh, those who do the least amount of damage third, and then finally the complete leftovers. 
And you may remember uh, at, at what place you found yourself as you were being picked. That's what Gideon feels like when the angel of the Lord says, you are a mighty man of value, and you will lead your people in victory over the Midianites. And Gideon says, who? Me? Not me. And yet God has convinced him through a miraculous sign, as he demanded, uh, and has answered that and has said, now I'm going to ask you to be brave and allow me to empower you uh, for you to win the victory. Uh, the way in which God has done this is in a manner that will prevent Gideon from receiving the credit and will allow all the credit to go to God. And that's the way God deserves uh, to win battles, uh, not by us patting ourselves on the back and saying, didn't I do such a great job, uh, but by all the glory going to God himself, who clearly uh, deserves the credit and has given uh, the victory. So this is what we'll see uh, as the enemies encamp against Israel and as Gideon calls the nation together to resist them. Uh, we're picking up the context now in Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 33. Judges 6, verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiazrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and to Zebulun and to Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. I want you to notice how uh, God has asked Gideon to lead. Uh, some of us don't know the, the latent gifts of leadership we have within ourselves because we never have taken an opportunity to lead. Uh, we have always looked for someone else to lead, and we've always said, well, I'd be happy to follow if someone else will lead. But imagine if every single one of us said, I'll be a follower, and not one of us was willing to lead. But you see, the spirit of the Lord himself comes upon Gideon and is empowering him to be brave at the right moment. He blows the trumpet that would call together the army, and first it's his own clan that comes together, the Abizarites, and then Manasseh, his tribe, and then the other nearby tribes there in the southeastern corner, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. They all are about to be attacked, and God is empowering Gideon to raise an army to oppose them. But Gideon, as we already know in his character, is nervous about this whole thing, and he decides that one sign was not enough, miraculous as it was, as consuming as it was of the entire meal that perhaps could have even fed his family. And he says, if you will only be kind enough to show me again that this is your intention. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me, notice the next words, as you've spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only and it's dry on the ground, 
then I'll know that you'll deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. Is there something wrong with that construction? Twice he has said that God has clearly spoken to him as to what he was to do. And yet he says, humor me here. I'm just nervous about this whole thing. My life is on the line. This is important. Can you show me a miraculous sign? Uh, can there be dew on the fleece only? Now, folks, uh, we have adopted this kind of pattern in our own lives and have put God to the test at times when he doesn't want to be tested and have tried to cause him to act as our butler. Uh, you do what I say when I say it. And this is not how God should relate to us. There are times at which, uh, in his mercy, he is kind enough uh, to answer our requests for signs. Uh, we were just talking about a, a brother who was uh, wondering, should I go to Emmaus? He was sharing this with uh, his friends around uh, the campsite. Uh, and he said, if God will send me a sign right now, then I will go to Emmaus. And suddenly, as they were all uh, witness, uh, shooting stars, several of them went across the sky, and he ended up coming to Emmaus. Yet, sometimes, uh, when we set up these tests, uh, we slant them so much in our favor uh, that it's most likely circumstantial and not in God's intervention at all. There was a student friend of mine uh, who was shy, like many guys are, about uh, expressing to a young lady that uh, he had some sense of fondness for her and, and uh, could they get to know each other a bit. Uh, and he was relating to me uh, that he had prayed and he said he laid out a fleece before God. And what the fleece was, was that if she were to come to class the next day wearing a red dress, he would ask her out. And I said, that isn't even fair. You know her favorite color is red. <laughs> we should not think that this is meant to teach us that the best ways to determine God's will is to set out fleeces. We should not say to God, I will sell this particular item of mine if you produce a buyer for me at a particular price. Is God supposed to control events in such a manner that we make him continuously respond to our trivial requests in this way? Almost, well, let me back up. The majority of what God wants us to know to make the decisions that we need to please him are found already written in the scripture. I almost exaggerated and said almost all. But let me at least say the majority of that which God wants us to know to make decisions to follow him are found in his word. In the New Testament era, in which we are indwelt personally by the Holy Spirit, uh, we have a tremendous advantage uh, ahead of those uh, of our predecessors in the sense that uh, as the Spirit communes with our spirit, he can actually lead us. Uh, an example would be talked about in Romans 8, uh, where every believer having the Spirit is 
to be led by God. And the impressions and the leading of the Spirit can guide us in which way to go. Um, We are reading his word, and uh, he is changing our character, and we learn wisdom from God. And we apply that wisdom in uh, taking principles found in the Scripture. Say we learn them in Proverbs, or we learn them in uh, passages like 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 9, 10. Uh, Romans 15, those kinds of passages that list a series of principles by which we would make decisions in matters of moral indifference, uh, we use wisdom to apply those principles to our particular situation and make a wise decision on the basis of how God has taught us. If we sense that we're personally prejudiced in our decision, uh, she sure seems like a nice girl to me and she wears red a lot, we could go to someone who perhaps has a cooler head, and we could explain to that person our situation, and a wise counsel from a mature believer could help us see past our blind spots. Uh, There's wisdom in that. It's true that God does sometimes lead us by our personal desires. He says if we delight ourselves in him, he will give us the desires of our heart. It's not as if he's seeking to make us unhappy, Uh, but neither is happiness the greatest and most important virtue in our spiritual development. It's far more important for us to develop Christ-like character than it is to be circumstantially happy from time to time. But we can choose according to our personal desires if the other principles line up. And then, finally, circumstances might actually guide us. If we apply to two different schools and one accepts us and the other does not, circumstantially, it seems like a fairly easy decision in that regard. I do not recommend that we set out fleeces in this way. However, you will see God kindly, patiently do exactly as Gideon is asking because he's developing his servant and allowing him to grow in his trust of the Lord. We read in verse 38, and it was so, just as Gideon had asked. But if one sign is not enough, he begins to overthink, and he says, now wait a second, won't wool retain moisture longer than the dry ground? You know, maybe I just didn't get up early enough. Uh, Maybe the ground was wet too. Can you reverse it? Uh, Can you make the ground wet and and the fleece dry. It wasn't enough that he could squeeze a whole bowl full of water out of that first fleece. He says, Lord, don't let your anger burn against me. I speak once more. Make the test backwards. And what did God do? Exactly as he asked. And Gideon has a double affirmative answer. Yes, You are to lead your people against the Midianites, and I promise you, I will fight the battle for you, and I will give you victory. Now be brave. Many times when we are scared, it's because we're trusting solely in ourselves and our own capabilities, and we're not trusting in God who fights for us. But God has made it crystal clear with the Israelites that when uh, they are willing to obey him and uh, they're rising up against their enemies, the victory will come from God, not from them. It's not because they're such fantastic warriors. It's because God is so fantastic. 
Uh, as the prophet had just uh, earlier said, it was God who led the people free from Egypt. It wasn't Israel that caused them to be let go from uh, Pharaoh's bondage. God did that. And similarly, in our problems where we say this is insurmountable, this is impossible, this could never happen, or we say, I don't think I'm smart enough or capable enough to achieve this, we're speaking focused on ourselves. And the whole story of Gideon, and we could repeat the story over and over again with anyone in the hall of faith, is that we're taking our eyes off of ourselves and we're placing them on God and we're allowing God to fight the battle, not us. If this is God's battle, God will fight it. And this is exactly how it's going to take place. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, you have to love that nickname, who's still alive and Baal has not touched, um, better known as Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel will become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. If you're looking for key phrases in a passage as to how to interpret and apply the passage, you can't get clearer instruction than God himself saying, let me tell you what's important in this situation. It's important that you don't take credit. It's important that I get all the credit. Now, that hurts our feelings at times, especially when we're serving the Lord. Uh, preachers uh, will say, you know, wasn't my mouth moving? Uh, weren't those my hands that were in the air? Uh, it's so tempting for us to imagine that our hard work has brought success and service for the Lord. Yes, God uses us, and yes, it is our minds that are engaged, and yes, he ministers through our personality, but he ministers beyond our ability in a way in which we can clearly see the Spirit work. There are times when physically we will grow weary, and we will say, I don't think I want to continue in this any longer. And then we find a, a second wind, as it were, in the empowerment of God. I was at camp at Bridigo Pines, and I was the speaker that particular week. We come to Thursday night, uh, the week in which uh, the crescendo was being reached uh, as far as the gospel presentation. And at the end, I asked all those who wanted to stay after to talk about uh, their status with God. Uh, to stay behind, and would the counselors would, would do so as well, and uh, all those uh, who wanted to go back to the cabins, could they please go quietly back to their cabins? There were enough kids that stayed uh, that uh, we needed more help uh, than just counselors, and so I went down and sat in a chair uh, next to a 16-year-old boy. 
And he began to ask questions, and I answered his questions, and some of his questions were hard, and I was uh, privately thanking the Lord I'd actually gone to school, and some of these were classic questions. Uh, you would see them right in the textbooks. You'd see the answers uh, right there in the textbooks, and you could remember what you'd study, and you could give him his answers. It was an apologetic discussion in which he was asking classical questions as to God's existence, evidence of God's existence, God's power, the problem of evil. He was going on and on. And I was thinking to myself, this kid's 16. How did he come up with such amazing questions? But he seemed very sincere, and I kept answering them. As I was looking around the room, whereas there might have been 45 people at first, it was dwindling down as it was getting later and later, and it got to the point where there were just two of us left. We were alone. And he kept talking and kept asking questions. I kept answering. And some of his questions were getting so hard, I was beginning to struggle. And I remembered, like, I can pray. And so I was praying. I was asking God for wisdom. And I was thinking, like, how can he stump me? This isn't fair. And I was thinking hard. And I was uh, searching the scriptures. And I was asking the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And I was growing weary. And I was thinking, like, this is camp. This is only Thursday night. We have a captive audience. He'll be here Friday. We've got Saturday morning if we need it as well. We could call it a night. But since I was in constant prayer asking for help and making uh, answers for him, uh, the Spirit was impressing upon me, don't give up. He's under conviction. Don't leave now. Keep going. And so in my mind, I had a very clear shift between what I would do if it were just me and what I would do if I were sensing God's leading. And I had a choice there. Physically, I was tired. Emotionally, I was tired. Mentally, I was tired. I was ready to call it a night. But what I would do if I were by myself and not praying is not the same as what God was asking me to do. He was asking me, stay and answer his questions. He's under conviction. And so I kept going. And I eventually brought him back to the gospel again. And I asked him a, a strong question about whether or not he wanted to believe in Christ. And he said he did. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. I almost went back to bed. I led him through the gospel he was at the point where uh, he was ready to make the decision. I explained to him it was by faith alone. And you didn't even need to pray particularly. Prayer is not uh, something that he would have to do in order to believe. It was belief alone. And yet I said, normally it's good to express what you're deciding before the Lord in prayer. Would you like to pray? He said he would. I said, would you like to pray out loud or quietly by yourself? He said, I want to pray silently. And so I told him the kinds of things he could say, and he prayed silently. I asked him what he decided. He told me verbally what he decided, and so I showed him the passage of Scripture for his assurance. And then I said, why don't you go back to the cabin and wake up your fellow campers and tell them the decision you made? And then we both parted and went to bed. Now that next morning when I got up and went to breakfast, I was wondering in my mind, had I interpreted this correctly? Had he actually trusted Christ in faith? And praise the Lord, I got to breakfast and everybody was rejoicing. Everybody knew because he had done exactly what I'd asked. He'd woken up his fellow campers and told them the decision he'd made, that he had trusted Christ. 
And I learned a lesson regarding the difference between my decisions and the leading of the Spirit that I want to be sensitive to how the Spirit leads and I want it to be the empowerment of God, not my power. I want it to be from God, not from me. It's crucial then that Israel know that if God gives victory, it doesn't credit them. It credits God. And so God said, I want you to say in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. This is a very interesting aspect of psychology. If you asked a volunteer army, who would really rather be at home now and see how many people leave, <laughs> you have a scientific answer right here. 22,000 people volunteered to go home and only 10,000 people remained. Even with the larger army, he didn't have one-fourth the number of soldiers that he was about to go against. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go, he shall go. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. And so it doesn't seem to be a completely clear uh, differentiation between how it is that they're drinking water and their suitableness to fighting a battle. But he does just as the Lord asks, and it separated out 300 men. And in verse 7, the Lord says, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped. I'll give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other people go, each to his own home. But thankfully, they left behind their provisions, which included plenty of trumpets and plenty of clay vessels that could hide lit torches. A trumpet was normally used to call together an entire company of men, but he had enough trumpets to go around all 300 of them, and again, enough pitchers that they could hide 300 torches. Now that same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. This is not a time at which he needs to put out another fleece and say, I'm not sure if I've heard you correctly. Uh, would you repeat yourself, please? Did you say we're to attack tonight? But God this time volunteers to give him another sign, uh, a third major sign for him. And he says, if you're afraid, go down and listen in to one of the tents. What you hear will be enough to give you confidence that when I promise I give you the victory, I'm telling you the truth. What he hears is a dream. One man waking up and relating to the man next to him what he had dreamed. Many times in the scripture, 
you will see that God has used dreams to communicate to his people. I have strange dreams sometimes, and I wake up and I think, what could that possibly mean? I'm not Joseph or Daniel, but I feel like this was so interesting, let me tell it to you. And so I'll uh, try to get my wife's attention first thing in the morning and say, I had a dream, I want to relate it to you. She'll say such things, it was just a dream, forget it. And I'll go, no, no, this was a very vivid dream. Uh, this was a very interesting dream. Let me relate it to you. And she'll say, it doesn't mean anything. Just forget the whole thing. It doesn't mean anything. However, just two weeks ago, she herself had a very interesting dream and said, I've got to tell you exactly what happened in this dream. And I said, it doesn't mean anything. But God has, historically, at many times, used dreams to communicate information uh, to his people. Joseph, Daniel, and the like. Gideon takes his servant, Purah, and goes down to the camp and listens to what is heard. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, these camels could travel 100 miles in a single day. It was like a cavalry unit, uh, a very uh, fierce tool in battle. Uh, 125,000, 130,000 soldiers all camped in this valley. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. He said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley, a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. <clears throat> I remember during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the uh, United Nations, when the Security Council was uh, discussing the tension between the United States uh, and Russia. And our ambassador uh, was speaking to his counterpart, the Russian ambassador. And he was trying to pin him down with a yes or no answer. And at one point he says, don't wait for the translation, answer me. You don't even have to listen to the interpretation to the stream. Any of us could figure this out. Barley is what Israel ate when they were poor. A barley loaf rolling down the hill easily represents Israel. It rolls into the tent and knocks the tent upside down. It's a beautiful picture of Israel attacking Midian and winning. But if that's not enough for Gideon, let's let someone speak to this. The friend who hears the dream, uh, the other Midianite, says, why, why, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon. Not like there were a lot of Gideons, but he says, you know, Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. You just dreamt it. That ought to be enough. And sometimes you just have to laugh at yourself as we demand from God Clarity equal to this, in which we say, you've got to make it crystal clear if I'm really going to believe you and really trust you. But faith and hope require us not 
to be able to see the promise. To know that the promise is there, but not to be able to see it. It's as if you have to reach out and take it because you know it's there, but you can't see it. Otherwise, it's not faith. Otherwise, it's not hope. In this case, it is frightening for 300 men to rush down a hillside at 125 or 130,000 men. But has not God made it clear, I led you free from Pharaoh. I can give you this battle as well. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord... And for Gideon, it's not immediately apparent exactly how this is going to work, but you can tell from the noise and the light, it's going to be shock and awe. God has interesting plans as to how this battle will be won. He's not going to keep all 300 men together in one place. He's going to surround the Midianites up high on the hills above them, with torches hidden inside pitchers and a trumpet for every single man, a trumpet representing supposedly an entire company of men about to attack. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. This is what we would call late evening between about 10 and midnight. And it is the most dangerous time in guarding the camp because you have soldiers coming off duty, going back to their tents, looking to get into their tents and fall asleep. You have other soldiers awakening from sleep, getting out of their tents, putting their weapons on, and going back out to the uh, line and planning to guard for the next watch. There's a lot more people up and about stirring around the tents, banging together their weapons than normal. It's right at that moment, during the confusion of so many men outside the tents, that they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers and held up those torches. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon meaning that even the battle cry was to say that the Lord is fighting this battle. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army The majority of the casualties was what we would call friendly fire. The majority of the casualties were the Midianites and the Amalekites killing themselves in the confusion 
of being attacked at night. And as they fled, Israel was easily able to overtake the encampment and chase them down and kill and capture them and win a decisive battle. Gideon has turned out to be the hero, the mighty man of valor that God described him to be. But he's also suitably humbled by what he has been led through and will not take the credit for this battle. Israel is so thrilled, they say, we'd like to make you king. And he'll say, no, I won't be king. God is your king. And this is how God wants it. He wants us brave but humble, willing to work hard but with the empowerment of the Spirit, willing to trust even though it seems impossible, willing to do exactly as he says. God's salvation God's deliverance from our enemies does not come to those who are strong in their own strength, but to those who are weak, better, meek, and humble, and willing to serve God. Notice there are no other gods. Baal does not exist. Baal did not destroy Gideon. There's only one God, the creator of heaven and earth the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the one true God deserves all the glory. If we were to have written this battle plan, it wouldn't look anything like the battle plan we have just read. Because our ways are different from God's ways. And God's ways are higher than our ways. If we serve God, there are going to be times when we're scared. There are times when the circumstances don't look like they will work out well. There'll be times in which we'll say, I have no ability to do anything but merely trust you. I don't know what you're seeking to do in my life, but I trust you. And strangely, almost as if it were written by a business leader, Sometimes less is more with God. Because sometimes less gives more credit to God than we overworking it with our desire to make sure we get what we want. You can see this pattern repeated over and over again in life after life, rehearsed in the scripture. Do you remember when Paul, for example, had the thorn in the flesh? This is the same Paul who'd healed people from their diseases, the same Paul that at one point in his life, they were trying to grab prayer cloths from him to be healed. And though he prayed to God to have the thorn in the flesh removed, what was the Lord's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. Many times in our own lives, we're going to be in situations like that where it's not pleasant, it's not enjoyable, it's not what we would have picked, it's not how we would have designed it, but it's exactly what God wants for us 
for our character development in Christlikeness, for our ability to serve him better in the body of Christ because those with the strong Christ-like character will be able to serve better in the body of Christ and result in his glory, not ours. Even Paul himself surmises, could it have been that I was becoming proud because of the vision I've seen? And he said, it changed the way I ministered because I was forced to minister through my physical weakness, but through God's strength. There is a New Testament example of an Old Testament lesson that we see repeated in both Testaments over and over again. Don't think it's that bad if you feel weak. We have a strong God, a mighty God, a God who is capable of empowering us to do things we never imagined possible. And a God, if we were to look back at the track record, say, he's faithful, He's trustworthy. He can be trusted for the future as well. I don't want or need any of the credit. I want all the credit to go to him. That's the lesson of Gideon. Father, we turn to you then and ask that you would teach us the truth of this story. We hope gently because we need to live in such a way that we are men and women of valor. People who trust you completely and fully, even for those things that are difficult to believe. We want to know your will clearly, do it quickly. We want to volunteer quickly. And we want to be empowered by you to serve you as we know you have asked us to do. Father, as we restudy passages like this over and over again, we would ask that you would drive home clearly to us these principles that lest we get glory, you make sure that we have to operate in faith and not in our own strength. And we praise you for your kindness in answering the Israelites and their desire to be relieved from this oppression. And we pray that we be faithful in lifting up our request to you as well, asking for your provision and your protection and your care. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.